Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Good morning. Theologian J.I. Packer, you guys might be familiar with him, a Reformed theologian, once said that either it takes 15 sermons to preach Acts chapter 26, or it takes one sermon. Peter and I, this last week, had a session meeting, and at our session meeting we, had, uh, we read through um, chapter 26 together, and I told him I had planned just to take a small portion of this giant chapter, because... I, it's intimidating to take a whole chapter of Scripture and try to uh, preach a sermon from it. But I'm going to take Mr. Packer's advice this morning. And we're going to look at the whole chapter. Because uh, I think he might be right. That it's either you split it up into a bunch of little sections or you just talk about the story. And so this morning we're going to look at the whole story. We looked last week at the Apostle Peter's confession. And this week we are... In our lectionary readings, we're going to look at the conversion of Paul. He mentions his conversion in his testimony to Agrippa. And as mentioned last week, the book of Matthew, we talked about the gospel of Matthew, it follows Jesus' ministry as a new Israel. Jesus is a new Israel, a perfect Israel. And we can see that Paul's ministry in the book of Acts is an imitation of Jesus' ministry. Paul's life imitates Christ in some pretty striking ways. After Jesus' transfiguration, he begins his long march toward Jerusalem for his trial and his death. And during his travels, Jesus is gathering different crowds and followers on his way to the temple. And Paul, likewise, in the book of Acts, is led by the Spirit on a long journey to Jerusalem. And as he travels through Macedonia and Greece and Ephesus, he's led to his arrest in Jerusalem for preaching against the law in the temple. But Paul's journey doesn't end in Jerusalem. It ends with Paul preaching to the kings and governors of both the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews rejected Jesus. They rejected the disciples. And then they reject Paul. Paul preached to the rulers and the kings three separate times at the the end of the book of Acts. And in our sermon text, we're looking at the third instance of that. The gospel is being taken to the whole world. And its leaders are given the gospel in a pretty pronounced way. What Jesus told Peter and the disciples to keep quiet, if you'll remember last week, Paul was to take to the entire world. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the message for the world. And this is the context for our passage this morning. Jesus in Acts chapter 9, you know, 15 chapters previously, 17 chapters, Jesus tells Ananias that Paul is to bear his name before the Gentiles. And not just before the Gentiles, but before kings and the children of Israel. And when Jesus is giving Peter, James, John, and Andrew the sign of the end times, he says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. So this is what's happening to Paul. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus had told Ananias. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus had told the disciples. Paul is brought before three rulers at the end of Acts. First, he speaks with Felix. Felix was a tyrannical ruler, if you'll remember, who offended the rights of the Jews. Paul preaches to Felix about righteousness. 
about self-control and the judgment that's to come. This was disturbing to Felix, a man who was not a just ruler. Right? Paul gears his message toward Felix's tyrannical rule. And then second, we see Paul speaks with Festus. Festus was concerned about handing over a Roman citizen to a third party for a death sentence. This is not what the Romans did. They never handed over someone for third party justice. So the Jews had asked for Paul to be conveniently walking along a path and for them to be able to ambush and kill him. But Festus believed that that was not the authority in his charge. So how does Paul preach to Festus? Well, he tells him about what right submission to authority looks like. He tells Festus to kill him if he is guilty of a capital crime. He says, go ahead and kill me if I've committed any wrong. He's appealing to that right application of authority. And then lastly, in the book of Acts, we see Paul brought before King Agrippa. Agrippa was a man who was very acquainted with the Jewish law and even required his children to study it. Because they're going to be ruling over the Jews, you should know the Jewish law. Agrippa knew of God's revelation to his people. So Paul preached directly to Agrippa's knowledge of that revelation of Jesus. He preaches the revelation of Jesus Christ, not only to Paul, but to the whole world. So, if you'll indulge me this morning, I want to read the whole chapter. Just stick with me. I'll try to make it interesting. But just kind of follow the story as we go through. That way we can, we can address some topics in there. So, the text says this. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself, because you, concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions would have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all of the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and then they were put to death. I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have yet to reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, 
to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, why are you beside yourself? Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. So King Agrippa, I hope you followed that passage, uh, but King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, um, his incestuous sister Bernice, come to meet with Festus, who was currently holding Paul on charges of preaching against the law in the temple. Festus arranges a hearing with Agrippa and Bernice so that they might advise Festus on the sending of Paul to the emperor to Caesar. This is a big gathering, a big pomp and circumstance, full of ceremony and frills. They got all dressed up and called everyone in the room, right? And as they look to Paul to speak, as they, as they look to him, he is happy to do so, knowing that Agrippa's knowledge of the Jewish law and the prophecies. Agrippa was a circumcised king. He was part of the objective covenant. He was part of these people. He had grown up in this for the sake of ruling over, right? He was in charge of ruling the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the group of gov the governing body of the Jewish people at the time. So Agrippa knew the law and the prophets. He knew the customs as ruler over the people. So Paul was eager to speak to him. Paul begins his argument by stating that he grew up a Pharisee and believed in the works of God. He states that the charges he faces are wrapped up in one question to which he poses to Agrippa in verse 8. He says, Why should it be thought incredible by you, King Agrippa, that God raises the dead? Paul knows Agrippa had read the law and the prophets regarding resurrection. Agrippa knows of God's great works in history. So surely he would acknowledge that our God, that the God of Israel, could raise the dead. So Paul appeals to Agrippa by name in this encounter. If you look at your passage, he uses Agrippa's name four different times. His argument is not so much that Agrippa should hear Paul's story and become a Christian, 
But Paul's argument is that he is a greater Pharisee than all of the other Pharisees. He has seen the fulfillment of the great prophecy about a king come to rescue his people, to kill the dragon. He's seen how this revelation has worked out. He's a better Pharisee than all of the other Pharisees. He has seen the Messiah come, and all he has done to obey is to obey. All he has done in the course of his life is obey as the Scripture commands. So in verse 9 through 18, that passage where Paul gives his conversion experience... He explains his radical opposition to the gospel and how Jesus called him to proclaim the gospel to Jew and Gentile. Through the proclamation of all the nations, they were to be converted from the power of Satan. All people receive forgiveness and an inheritance by faith in Christ, not just the Jews. Then we see Paul's direct appeal to King Agrippa after verse 18. He knows King Agrippa values the revelation of God. So he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared their need to repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. He appeals to Agrippa's knowledge of the Bible and what has to happen as a response to that knowledge. Paul has done nothing worthy of the death penalty. All he has done was preach that which the prophets and Moses said would come. That Jesus was the Christ who would suffer and be first to rise from the dead, proclaiming the light to the Jews and the Gentiles. His appeal to Agrippa is obey. Look at what is true and obey. I know you see it, Agrippa. And to this, Festus, one of the other kings in the room, shouts, you're out of your mind. Right? But Festus did not know the scriptures like Paul did. And he knew, and Paul knew, that at To convince Agrippa, he would have to appeal to Agrippa's knowledge and disregard Festus' lack of knowledge. So he says to Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe them. To which Agrippa responds in his rejection, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa misses Paul's point, right? He doesn't see what Paul is trying to do. Paul was pointing to all of history. He wasn't pointing to a small period of time where he got his convert. He was converted into something other than he was. He's pointing to all of human history. All the time points to Jesus being the Messiah. All of Israel's history points to the truth of Jesus' life. And all Paul was doing was preaching that God had told him to preach. So Paul was obedient to Christ's command. The gospel had gone to the rulers and kings, as Jesus foretold. He gave this gospel message to all the rulers that he came in contact with. Paul prayed for them in front of them, in front of the commanders and the officials of the kingdom. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The important people were all gathered in this room in ceremony and pageantry, and then they dispersed in the opposite way. Right? You see at the, at the end of the passage it says they've all kind of just walked off. Their ruling was quickly that Paul did not deserve his chains or death. But since he had appealed to, to Caesar, they had no choice. They punted. Right? They didn't know what to do with it. Well, they didn't know what to do with it, but they refused. They passed their responsibility on to someone else. And Agrippa took a look at the truth he knew to be confronting him in that room, and he dismissed it. So when we think of this event, when we think about Acts chapter 26, it is likely we place ourselves in the position of Paul, right? He's the believer. 
Let's put ourselves in his shoes, suffering for the sake of the gospel, hopefully trying to win our neighbors to Christ, or giving our stories as a testimony to the gospel we believe. But Paul is appealing to his own story only so that he might explain to Agrippa all of Israel's history and how that should cause him to obey. Paul says he was once like Agrippa, believing he had to persecute the Christians. He says that his crime is being obedient to the heavenly vision, the revelation of God. And Agrippa knows this same revelation, but chooses to reject it. For whatever reason, Agrippa's response is dismissive. Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's dismissive. And we can see in this event as a sort of outline for our evangelism. I think that's a helpful application of this passage. When you come into contact with a sheep gone astray, you should appeal to them to what they know is true. That's a, that's a fair uh, application. I think it's good. Point out the truth of what God said in their baptism. Point to the history of them knowing what is true about Jesus being the Messiah. Or further still, if you want to take this evangelism application further, when you come into contact with a person who has not ever belonged to the covenant, appeal to the truth they're suppressing. Right? Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The triune God of Scripture has been revealed, and unrighteous men suppress that truth. Or even further still, Paul's example to thoughtfully, prayerfully, strategically amend your words as you witness to those who don't know the gospel. Specifically addressing the person in front of you for the sake of evangelism. This is a good application. The gospel is the same. The truth is the same. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again on the third day. And that he's been seen by Cephas in the twelve. This is the same gospel, but we can move those words around to be winsome, to make good appeals to the person in front of us. This is the gospel, right? This simple gospel that we move around. One thing I think is interesting, when I joined a church one time, they asked us to give a simple, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think the gospel is? And so we told them, you know, basically what I just read there. And the minister there said, I, I just like to hear different responses to the same question, and they're all right. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it. The gospel is that Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he was raised for the sake of our lives, for the salvation of the world. He, he showed himself to the twelve. That is true. And what that means and how someone articulates it might be different, but it's still the same gospel. Paul does not just say... He doesn't just quote that 1 Corinthians 15 passage and then walk away from Festus. He doesn't just quote that 1 Corinthians passage and walk away from Felix. He points to each man's specific suppression. Felix was a tyrannical and harsh with the law. So Paul preached the judgment to come and the true righteousness and self-control that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Festus was a coward, the second king. He was a coward and a worshiper of power. So Paul preaches about right submission to authority and what that looks like. He's even willing to die for this gospel. And with Agrippa, in our passage this morning, Paul appeals to the revelation of God in Jesus because he knows that Agrippa is rejecting it out of hatred for the Jews. 
and for Jesus, like Paul himself did. And we can see this event as a call to a righteous evangelism. I think that's good and helpful, and we should. As a call to suffer for Christ, suffer as Christ suffered, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to the world. That is right and good. This morning, let us also see how we might partake in the sins of Agrippa. We are all baptized covenant members in this room, hopefully. And as we are confronted with the truth of the scriptures on a daily basis, on a weekly basis in this room, how do we respond? We think the scripture says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Right? We like to point to that. We don't want to be just tossed to and fro. But when the the truth of the plain scripture read to us is seen, we can be extremely slow to adopt it, to believe it, to take it on. We might hastily walk out of the room. Knowing that the revelation of God is what it is, as Agrippa did, and being confronted with Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, clear illumination of the Messiahship of Christ, he dismissed it. He got up and walked away and said, ah, maybe we shouldn't kill him, but he appealed to Caesar. I'm not talking about difficult doctrines, right? I'm not talking about the five views of the active obedience of Christ or some ethereal thing you've probably never heard of. I'm not talking about those things. But what about the ten words? What about the commandments and the law? Thou shalt not steal. Honor your father and your mother. Do not covet. Or how about another, the one and other commands that we discussed during Advent? Love one another. Be at peace with one another. Encourage one another. Or how about commands of posture? Rejoice is a command. Give thanks is a command. Do not be afraid. <coughs> Praise the Lord. All of these things can be easily dismissed, especially in our culture today. We are told that the oppressed of our culture, the people most stigmatized for whatever reason, good or bad reasons, is to be excused from their responsibilities. They have some reason that they don't have to do that. People have never-ending lists of why they are not required to believe what is true and obey. Agrippa's dad, if you know the story, Agrippa's dad is Herod. He tried to kill Jesus as an infant. Agrippa himself, in our story, he had an incestuous relationship with his sister. He was a leader of Judea, so he had vast amounts of resources and responsibilities. He was a very rich man. He was a king. Can you think of a few excuses Agrippa might have for not bowing the knee to Jesus? You know how hard it is to be righteous as a rich man? You know how hard it is to not sin sexually when you can have any woman that you want? You know I'm better than my dad was. My childhood was horrific. You can imagine him appealing to his victim status. And how do Christians reject what they know is true today? They point to all the types of reasons they should be excused from it. Of course I'm going to be irritable and grumpy. Do you know how much responsibility I'm going, I have at work? Do you know what's going on in my life? Of course I'm going to snap at my kids and my wife. That guy did that one thing 10 years ago and doesn't deserve my encouragement or my blessings. If the kids are going to treat me like this, then why should I even bless them? Why do I even do these things if the kids don't respect me? 
It's not stealing if I repay it later. It's not dishonor if they were rude first. It's not coveting if I don't get my physical satisfaction. I'm just doing it in my mind. And how do you think the culture learned this behavior? How do you think we got into this situation in our country? We are quick to find ways out of our obedience like Agrippa. There is a responsibility to act, a responsibility to obey when we believe. Paul's conversion testifies to what it means for a Christian to hear the revelation of God and obey. He saw the light. Jesus told him who he was and said, this is the ministry that I'm calling you to. And Paul went to work. Agrippa's rejection of the truth testifies to how people in the covenant, even in the covenant, suppress the truth when they're confronted by it. Paul's first question is the question for all believers when confronted with the truth of the scriptures. I think we can apply this same question to all of the times you come into contact with a truth. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You believe in a God who raises the dead. You believe that the Son came to die for you and was raised from the grave on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is interceding on your behalf even now. So when Jesus demands you to rejoice, why should it be incredible? That the God who raises the dead would help you rejoice. When the scripture teaches you to tithe, to join a local church, to submit to elders, to take the Lord's Supper every week, to obey your husband, to die for your wife, to obey your parents, are you looking for a reason to dismiss the command? You think it's incredible that God would use that guy's leadership? I can't believe God would ask that guy to be the leader of a church. I'm not going to submit to that church. You think it's incredible that God would accept a tithe that isn't used in the way that you think it should be used. That God would bless you through this bread and this wine. That doesn't make sense. I'm not going to believe that. Our God raises the dead. This is what you know. This is what you all confess as Christians. Our God raises the dead. He can do all things. Our God blesses His people through the sacraments. We believe that. Our God cares for His people through the church. We believe what happened in Eleanor's baptism was real, was tangible. That we can believe on the promises given to us and to our children. And our God gave us His Holy Spirit to keep us rejoicing, to keep us giving thanks and praising our God. So the charge is this this morning. Go share the gospel with the world. Thoughtfully, prayerfully, and strategically speak to the people you come into contact with and who give you their ear. And then obey the truth of the word without excuse and without regard of the consequences like Paul. For you believe in a God who raises the dead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.